1 Samuel chapter 28 this evening. And uh, last Thursday evening we got somewhat into this chapter, but we're going to go back and, and continue. We're going to start from the beginning again, um, just from chapter 28, and we'll get into chapter 29, Lord willing. We're rapidly approaching our ending of the book of 1 Samuel, looking forward to getting into 2 Samuel, where we really just get into the life of David while he's king, and, uh, and so I'm looking forward to that. But let's look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 28 this evening. This, no doubt, is one of those chapters that is um, very difficult, and there's some controversy surrounding it because of the nature of this chapter, and when we get into it, I think you'll understand why. But remember, David now is, he's on the run. He has been on the run for some time. And you recall that in chapter 27, David began to ally himself with the king of Achish, who was the king of Gath, which is the same hometown that Goliath was born. And now he finds himself... Uh, in alliance with a king of a city that David slew their champion. Don't you find that a little odd? (laughs) It is quite odd for David to go. But see, that's what fear does, and that's what I'm hoping we can uh, come away with tonight, a number of things. But one thing is that fear and unbelief brings us into really unusual places. And we're going to see it not only in David's life, but we're going to see it in Saul. Saul's life as well, because Saul was really governed by unbelief, and uh, it's kind of ironic, really, to see both of these men whom God had great plans for and had, you know, Saul was the king at that time, and yet David was um, already anointed to be king uh, sometime before the events that we're looking at tonight. But to see this man who slew Goliath, whose faith was really riding high, and now to see him kind of at his lowest point in all of his life. This is probably the worst point in David's life, with the exception of maybe the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah. This is a very long period of time where God was just working out things in David's life. And whenever um, a man or a woman, when God has a great plan for your life, often there is great preparation involved in that. And we know that God had a great plan for David. And obviously so many promises in the Old Testament scriptures are wrapped up in David. Not only in the fact that he is the king of Israel, but also through him, the savior of the world would be born. Through the line of Judah, through the line of King David. And so there were so many things riding on David's life here. And if you think of it, in spite of his fear, there was really no reason for David to fear. Although it's easy for us to sit back and be armchair warriors or armchair quarterbacks and say, well, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't have responded the way David did. But it's easy for us to say because we weren't in that situation. But think about living in a country where everybody is hunting you. And, you know, Saul is hunting you and all of his armies are hunting you because they're subservient to the king. And so, you know, think, put yourself in that condition, in that position, and... um, 
it really makes you do some strange things. It can make you do strange things, especially if you're not really walking and believing the Lord. And, and that's a challenge for us today. And so I'm hoping that we come away with that. There's a lot of things we can learn from the life of David and from the life of Saul uh, tonight as we go through this. But let's just get right into chapter 28 because it's a, it's a little bit lengthier of a chapter and it's uh, quite interesting to say the least. It says, Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, because remember, David is now one of his close comrades. Uh, Unfortunately, this unholy alliance that David has put himself in. So Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. And so David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians or my chief bodyguards forever, okay? This Hebrew man, this Jewish man, is going to be the bodyguard of a Philistine king of a city of which David slew their champion. This is really, really odd, really odd. But fear makes you do some pretty odd things. And so David is in this uh, interesting place. And one of the greatest proofs of David's supposed loyalty to Achish is, was by going out with him to battle against David's own people because the Philistines were going to battle against the Jews, the Hebrews. And so now David finds himself in a, happily going against his own people. Now, it never happened, which is good news for David. I'm really glad that the Lord intervened in this craziness of David's life. But he was willing to go... And certainly the king of Achish, the king of Gath, wanted him to go as well. Because if David was able to kill his own countrymen and be victorious, Achish would then know that his claims of loyalty were true and he would have a wonderful ally in David, one who had defected to him from the Jews. And he was a great warrior, so he would be picking up a really wonderful asset to the Philistine army And so, you know, if we look at, um, you know, verse 2 there, so Achish, you know, David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said, therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. And again, just a strange thing to see him being a chief guard over this man. And uh, this, this whole thing would be laughable, again, if it weren't true. We would all be wondering, scratching our heads. And, um, and it's, it really is a tragedy, that a man of so full of faith and zeal in God could stoop so low in unbelief, it, it is rather frightening. And to realize that in and of ourselves, that can happen to us as well if we're not careful. You know, again, we, we, can, we can get on David's case tonight. We can look at him and, and really have some disdain for what he's doing. But I wonder what we would do. I mean, this is what I like to, when I'm, when I'm reading the Bible, I like, I like to put myself in the shoes of those people, in every character if you can. And when you read a passage that you've read over many times, try putting yourself in the sandals of someone else in that, in that, in that event. Because remember, this is history. This is not just a story. So these things are really real. And you get a different perspective when you, when you start doing that. And you start putting human our human uh, um, frame inside this thing because they were no different than you and I were. We have to remember that. They weren't, you know, lofty and holier than us, okay? 
they, they were normal people like you and I. And they, they feared the same things. They had the same hang-ups. They had the same victories. That, you know, and so we're, we're all alike in that way. And so we get to verse 3. It says, now Samuel had died, and we learned about this from chapter 25. Samuel, this patriarch, now he dies. And all Israel had lamented over him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul put the mediums and the spirits, spiritists out of the land and uh, remember, Samuel was a, a great leader. He was a great governor, if you will, over not only David, but also Saul. Saul looked at, at Samuel as a father figure, certainly as a man uh, that he could look up to. And it's always good to have a man or a woman that has been walking with the Lord for some time that you can confide in, that you can go to. Um, it's always good to be discipled by somebody and also be in the place of discipling as well. You know, to be a discipler and also to be being discipled by somebody older in the Lord than you are. And, um, and so Samuel was really that for Saul and for David. And David, you know, saw, Samuel was one of the few confidants that David had. And now that Samuel had passed away, all of a sudden it created this vacuum in David's life and in Saul's life. Saul no longer had a governor over him, someone to kind of look over his shoulder and say, are you doing the right thing, Saul? Because that's kind of the feeling that um, I believe Samuel's uh, influence over Saul had. But now he doesn't have that governor in his life anymore. And David doesn't have one he can run to anymore. And he's even more frightened as a result of that. There's nobody in his life. And sometimes the Lord allows these things in our life to, to isolate us. You know, when all of our earthly supports are gone, and it has to happen at some point in your life, if you're going to walk with the Lord and you're going to grow and mature, you're going to be in that place where all of your worldly, and I'm not saying worldly necessarily in a bad way, but all of your earthly supports are going to fail you. And I believe the Lord does that, obviously, by design, because when we trust in anybody other than the Lord, we're trusting in an imperfect human being. And although they may bring relief, although they may even help at times, God wants us to go to him first, him first, because we, put, we can put people on a pedestal. We have a tendency to do that, and it's a wrong thing to do. We, put our, we have false hope in them, and you also put them in a place of an unfair an unfair place, because nobody wants to be, you know, in that place of where you're idolizing them in a sense. And that happens, doesn't it? Especially in America. <laughs> we do that. We look up to pastors or, you know, famous guys on the radio or television or whatever, and it's easy for us to do that. But we have to remember they are men and women, and we are no different than they are. We have to worship God and nobody else, right? Let him be the first one that you go to. No, nobody else. And oftentimes when this governor in our life, like Samuel was to Saul and to, especially to Saul, you know, when that governor passes from the scene, it creates this void. And then this is the real test of the character of the man or woman, because then we're no longer under the thumb of an authority figure in our life. And this could be even a parent. Maybe you have a father who has been kind of your, um, the one guys that you look up to, and then when your father dies, all of a sudden, you're the man of the house now. You're the man of the family. And now you, the real test is on. Am I going to uphold those things that my father um, did in his life, especially if they're good things, if he's been a faithful father? Am I going to uphold those good and right things, or am I going to feel like a kid who just got out of school early 
<laughs> or uh, someone who's get, getting, getting away with something, and now dad's not going to be looking over my shoulder all the time. I can do whatever I want now, and he can't say anything about it, right? And we have that. Isn't that true about our human nature? I know it's true about mine, and I, you're probably no different than me. And so we have that within us. So there was no governor. And, and you know, uh, he was in complete rebellion, Saul, at this time, on a very quick descent to destruction. And again, the exhortation is to us, you know, to be sharing with our, with our kids, with our grandkids, Samuel was doing that to those. He had a school of prophets. He was pouring into these young men so that the work would continue to go on. But what happens when that work doesn't continue to go on? Then there grows a generation that grows up that doesn't know the Lord. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Judges. Uh, Let me read to you. You might want to write down the reference, but it's in Judges chapter 2. And it's one of the scariest portions of Scripture in all the Bible, I believe. It's in Judges 2, verse 7. It says, and this is going back to when Joshua was the leader after Moses had died. But notice what it, what it says. So the people served the Lord. They served God all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. But notice what happens. And, and we go down to the bottom, but, but at verse 10 it says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, in other words, when they had passed from the scene, when they had died, Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the works which he had done for Israel. And why is that? Because the fathers, the grandfathers, the, the, the mothers even, they weren't sharing with their kids and their grandkids. They weren't rehearsing in their ears the great things that God had done for them. And they certainly weren't sharing the word of God with them. So what then do you have? You have a, a new crop of children growing up who have no foundation. They have no foundation. They haven't been taught. They haven't been, hasn't been rehearsed in their ears. Honey, you remember the, you know, and you tell your kids about the wonderful works that God has done in your life. You know, what, what, what has God done in your life? Share those with your kids. Share them with other kids. Even if they're not your kids, share the good things that God has done in your life. And by all means, share the word of God with them. Find some young person and say, you know what, I want you to read this chapter, and next week when we get together, I'm going to have a couple questions for you. Or maybe you can write a few questions for me, and let's sit down and chat about it, even for 15 minutes. Can we do that? And get them to be thinking. We have to become thinkers again. People today aren't thinkers. We we listen to sound bites. There's very few thinkers today. We have to, and I need to, this is a challenge for me too, we need to be thinkers again, because kids aren't thinking critically any longer. They're not taught critical thinking. We need to be thinking critically, but we need to share that truth with them so that when they grow up, what are they going to do? They're going to share that with their kids. See, that's how it all works. We can't just stop. We have to let the Word of God do the work in our lives. And I've said this before, but a map of Israel is such a wonderful, wonderful demonstration, illustration of a life of a Christian. You know, the the snows from Mount Hermon are melting at very rapid rates all the time throughout the year. It comes down and it goes into the Sea of Galilee and it's fresh water. And the Sea of Galilee is teeming with life and fresh water. And that water goes down to the Jordan. And then it gets landlocked in the Dead Sea. All right? 
You and I, based on this verse, we need to be like the Sea of Galilee. We're receiving from above where we've got all of this information. We've got all of these good Bible teachings that we hear about. And then if we do something with that and we give it away, we put feet on our faith, we put it into action, then we become like the Sea of Galilee, teeming with life. But what happens when we receive from above, but there's no outlet? It just sets in our hearts. We don't do anything about it. We become stagnant and dead, hence the name, the Dead Sea. Nothing lives there. And that's so important for us. And that's what Samuel was. Samuel was one of those who gave out. He received from above and he gave out. Samuel was that way. Saul was not like that. Saul refused. He, he, he grabbed the spout where the blessings were coming in and he just quenched it. He quenched it. And so notice at the end of verse 3 there, it says, Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. In doing this, Saul was doing the right thing. He was following the Mosaic law. Because what does the Mosaic law tell us? The law of Moses. What does it tell us concerning a medium or a spiritist? In Exodus twenty-two eighteen, it says, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. A sorceress is someone who is practicing witchcraft, uh, someone who is um, involved in, in, in magic, you know, casting spells, sorcery. This kind of person was, to be, was not permitted to live because they would draw the Israelites into idolatry. And Jesus and God knew that that was the wrong direction. In Leviticus 19.31, it says, Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them. Do not be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Again, a medium is somebody who conjures up spirits. A medium is somebody who is a soothsayer or a necromancer. It's all kind of synonymous. Um, a medium is somebody who acts as a liaison, if you will, to supposedly contact or communicate with the dead on behalf of the living. But really, mediums are nothing more. They're contacting demons, and hence the name familiar spirits. They're familiar demons to the medium. And the demon is lying to them, saying that, you know, bring up for me Aunt, you know, Aunt Bethilda. <laughs> and the familiar spirit who's familiar to the medium the medium knows this spirit, but the, the, the spirit is lying to the medium, deceiving even the medium, telling, I know, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm Aunt Bethilda. And the devil, he knows the past very well. He studies every one of you, all of us. He knows the past. He doesn't know the future any more than we do. He knows the word of God like we do. He knows what's coming, but he doesn't know how specifically unless God allows him to know. So, but he's got a very good memory, a very good memory of our past. And he can, you know, he knows about Aunt Mathilda. He knew what made her tick. He knew what she wore, the kind of things she liked. He knew the cat that used to rest on her lap, that white Persian cat that she loved to pet every Sunday or, you know, by the windowsill. He knows that very well, and so the medium brings up this devil, a medium, this familiar spirit, and the familiar spirit lies, claiming to be Aunt Bethilda when it's nothing more than a demon who studied the life and therefore deceives the person. And can you imagine when people do this kind of thing, they, they hear in, you know, intimate details about her life that the person couldn't possibly have known. So it had to be, a, it's either Aunt Bethilda, her spirit, or it's a demon who has studied her. It's a demon. 
And that's why we will see in a few moments why this lady, this witch at Endor that Saul is going to associate with, why she's so frightened because all of a sudden the familiar spirit that's coming up is not the same spirit she's used to. And we'll look at that. But in Leviticus, it says, a man or a woman, this is Leviticus 20, 27, a man, who is a, a man or a woman who is a medium or has a familiar spirit shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says, These are not to be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. These are an abomination to the Lord. That's what he says. Even astrologers. When we think of an astrologist or an astrologer, they are, it's not a good thing. These are folks who put together horoscopes and read palms and these kinds of people. Not to be confused with astronomy, the study of the star. That's a worthy goal. The heavens declare the glory of God. Many astronomers have studied the heavens and came to faith as a result of it, realizing this was no mistake. And look at the order. <laughs> the more you study it, the more you realize there's an order. It's not just chaos out there, right? So astronomy is all fine and well, but when you start communicating with spirits to talk about you because of the, the date you were born, I mean, really? Isn't that kind of general? Doesn't that kind of add up? And sometimes they're going to be right on the money, but most of the time it's just a rolling the dice, but people buy into it, right? So I'd encourage you not to dabble into that kind of nonsense. Palm reading, seances, Ouija boards. We talked about this last week, and I mentioned Key West because Key West is like Sodom and Gomorrah of the South. And literally, it's like everything, anything goes in that town. It's, it's just full of wickedness. In, in the daytime, it's not so bad. But as soon as the sun goes down, oh, it gets pretty wicked outside. Every, it's like all the, all the owls and all the squirrels come out of the, the trees. It's it's really interesting place. But anyway, but a child of God should not be dabbling with such things, right? And what, why is Saul, knowing that these things are not right in God's eyes, why do we find Saul approaching a medium, a witch? Well, I think we can see that it'd be fairly easy when, because of his rebellion, and here's the scary thing, is that Saul had gotten to a place where he was in rebellion for so long and had rejected God so much that God rejected him. That's what the Bible says. He rejected him, and he chose, rather, his neighbor, David. And so there came a point in Saul's life, because of his disobedience, because of his rebellion, and God says, you know what? I'm not speaking to you anymore, Saul. And what does a man do like that? It'd be better for him to just beg God to forgive him. <laughs> and I think God would have accepted him if he really would have crumbled and really repented. But when the man doesn't repent, then what is there left but for the man to go to the dark side to get answers? And the devil will give you some answers. They're not going to be good ones. And they're going to get you more it's sort of like the tentacles of, a, of an octopus. He gets you in once, gets you in twice, and pretty soon you're completely involved in this thing. 
and your hook, line, and sinker into it. And the devil lies to you, and he he'll ultimately will destroy you. That's his intention, is to destroy. And that's what he's doing with Saul. And God is allowing it. He's allowing it, not because he wants to. God loves Saul, and he gave him many opportunities. But Saul made some very bad decisions, continued making bad decisions, and was disobedient to the Lord. Verse 4, it says, Then the Philistines gathered together, and they came, and they encamped at Shunem. And so Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. And this place, Shunem, is just to the south of the hill of Moray, which is in the Jezreel Valley, um, to the southwest of Mount Tabor. And Endor, believe it or not, is right between Mount Tabor and this hill of Moray, which is very near Shunem. And this is a place when we go to Israel, we drive right through this area, right through Mount Tabor next to it, and um, you can see the land and where all of this kind of came down. It was a very interesting, very interesting place, but this is where uh, it took place. And then verse 5, it says, When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart was trembling greatly. And, you know, think about the predicament that Saul was in here, because he was a man rejected by God. And now he's doing things that he knows he's not supposed to do. And then now he's got this Philistine army that's really huge amassing before him, and he's very frightened. There is nothing worse than to feel like you've got nobody to talk to. (laughs) Have you ever been in a place like that where all your troubles are mounting on you and you've got nobody, not even God is speaking to you? That's a very, very bad place. Now, I want to encourage you that if your heart is soft, God will... He always wants to speak to you. But understand that Saul is, an, is a great example of the kind of person not to be. You don't want to be like this insolent, I'm going to do it my way kind of attitude. I'm going to resist. I'm going to not obey the Lord. Learn to obey the Lord because there are blessings in obedience. There really is. Your life will be blessed if you are just obedient. And are, Is it really that hard anyway? I mean, granted, you know, doing the right thing sometimes and often is harder to do than doing the wrong thing. But we have to do the right thing. I want to encourage you to, to, to press in and not allow your flesh and your emotions to dominate you. And the devil is right there provoking your emotions. Are you one that's always bent on emotions, doing things on this, you know, and then they, they, they get angry, they get frustrated, and then you lash out, you do something. That, if you've got that temperament, be very, very careful because the devil loves people like that. But we have to learn to submit to those emotions. And when you're feeling like you're about ready to snap, the best thing you can do is drop to your knees, go into a public restroom if you have to, and sit on the toilet and shut the, shut the door and just sit there and, and just pray to God. You do what you got to do, but you know, don't think you can just handle it yourself because you're going to snap. You need to get on your face and pray to God and ask him to help you. And I guarantee if you do that, he will meet you more than halfway. But will you do it? It's certainly a lot more fun to just give in to the tantrum. It feels good for a moment, but then the bill comes. And the bill could be a physical bill. (laughs) By the things you broke, the windows you smashed, the drywall that you punched a hole through. Or it could be the bill of a lost relationship. Something you said out of anger that hurt somebody so deeply, and now you can't take it back. And it's going to take years before that person will trust you again. So we must be very careful. But Saul was incredibly, his, his heart trembled greatly because he was in a very bad place. And this was the day before 
he would ultimately die. Do you understand that? This incident that we're looking at, this event in his life, was the day before his last day. The next day, he would be gone. He would be killed by the Philistines. So, verse 6, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, notice that, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Remember what it said in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel, speaking to Saul, he says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Hmm, that's interesting. That's almost like a prophecy of what we're reading tonight, isn't it? Because just a few chapters ago, actually in chapter 15, Samuel was talking to Saul, and he says, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And what is Saul doing right at this moment that we're talking in this passage? He's involved in witchcraft. I feel like Samuel was exercising perhaps a, a word of knowledge. And, and, and I, don't, I don't think it was here by mistake. Samuel says, For rebellion is, is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness, Saul, is as iniquity and idolatry. And notice, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God had rejected him. We don't like to think about that. In Proverbs 15, 29, it says, The Lord is far from the wicked. In Proverbs 28, 9, and 10, it says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. There comes a point when that can happen. And I don't know when that line is drawn. Only God knows that. But I would encourage you to never mess around with those lines and get to the edge of the, you know, the Rubicon. Don't ever play games with grace. Don't ever play games with God and say, well, I can do it this time and get away because I've, I've done it many times before and I've gotten away with this thing. You don't know if you're going to get away with it this next time because God doesn't do the same thing in people's lives. And so we have to be very careful. And sometimes he will allow a child of God to be found out and for their lives to be really messed up. Sometimes he will allow that. If we're not willing to turn from our sin and we continue in rebellion, he may allow you to get busted. And it may cause a lot of problems. It happened in David's life, didn't it, with Bathsheba and Uriah. A good example. David was never the same after that. He wrote some really wonderful psalms that we can all um, relate to. But think of the psalms he could have written. Soaring with the eagles. <laughs> but now he's in the depths. And those psalms minister to us because they do. He, he gets his eyes off of himself and he focuses on the Lord. Those are good for us too. But how much better it would have been for David not to have fallen like that. But now we're looking at, you know, in Psalm 66, verse 18. This is one that's really scary. Uh, the psalmist says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And again, there's a point. I don't know when that is. But I don't want to flirt I have flirted with that myself, but I don't want to flirt with it anymore. You know, as we grow older in the Lord, doesn't your heart become more sensitive to him? Or hopefully it is. Hopefully your heart is growing to where you're just like, Lord, I, I just, I don't, I'm done with this. You know, for, there's something about age that does that to us. When you're young, you think you can get away with it. And usually God is very gracious. <laughs> He's always very gracious. But there's something about age, after you've done it for a while, a particular thing, a particular sin, and you're just like, you know what, this is really, and you know by experience, this is not good. It's not good, and why am I continuing to do it? 
there comes a point where you're just like, I'm really sick of this, and God's going, me too. I'm really glad that you've come to the end of yourself. And happy is the man or woman who comes to the end of themselves sooner than later. Why? Because then you don't have the scars to prove your rebellion. I wish I just listened to my parents. I wish I just listened to my mother, uh, you know, when I was younger and just do the, what she told me to do. I wished I would have read the Bible. I wish I would have been more obedient to the Word of God. I would have very few scars on me had I done that. Less scars than the average person, perhaps. Maybe it would be the same way. But rebellion creates these problems, right? So verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Notice, this is really peculiar, This is what they said. In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. How did they know that? Maybe they were frequenting her themselves. Weren't they supposed to execute those spiritists and mediums to get them out of the land? Why is it that these men who are very close to the king know about this and they haven't done anything about it? That's something just to ponder. Something to ponder. Kind of gives you an understanding of the times that they were living in, how things became kind of lackadaisical. People, eh, it's all right, we'll just compromise a little bit or compromise a whole lot. Sounds like America. Sounds like America. We are the biggest compromisers probably in the world. We've been given much. I'm not trying to make you here feel guilty tonight. I mean, that's not my intention. But we have to be careful, folks. We have to be really careful. We've been given much, and to whom much is given, much is required. Amen? So, you know, find me a woman who is a medium. And unfortunately, this is the path of a man or a woman who's rejected God. And, you know, you're desperate for an answer. The the heavens seem like brass to you. And the, the next thing to do is to consult the devil. And the devil will be more than happy to give you some news. In Psalm 60, verse 11, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Saul was going to man. He was going to a woman, actually, but he was going to mankind instead of God. Psalm 118, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Psalm 146, verse 3, do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. When we reject God and his word, we are basically casting his counsel away from us. And it reminds me of the, the, the testimony in Psalm 2. Do you remember Psalm 2? It says, Why do the nations rage and the people will plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Jehovah, and against his anointed, his Messiah, that's what that word means, saying, let us break their bands in pieces and cast away their cords from us. It's the independent, rebellious spirit. You know, when you were born, your mother had an umbilical cord attached to you, giving you everything you needed. And there does come a time, you know, I mean, it was healthy for the umbilical cord to be cut. But God is like, you know, giving us this, his spirit and giving us his counsel. And what happens when we cut that communication? When we do the proverbial cutting of the cord and we're like, no thanks, I can take care of this myself. I'll do it myself. I think I can do better. In fact, I'm old now. I've learned a lot. I've gone to Harvard. Yes, I've gone to Harvard. Harvard. 
And I've got my law degree, right? Oh, that makes me some kind of qualified now. So I don't need God anymore. So I'll just start cutting these cords. I don't need him anymore. I, I'm, I got it all together now. I got my degree. I got my fancy job. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways. The word all there is really interesting. It means only just a little bit, just a fraction. No, it means all. All means all, right? In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. But notice this woman, this medium at Endor, this fountain of habitation is the name of it. So Saul disguised, verse 8, he disguised himself and put on other clothes and he went and the two men with him and they came to the woman by night. That's always an ominous sign. You can almost hear the music change. If you were watching a movie, as soon as the, the sun goes down, all of a sudden the, mind, the, the music changes to a minor key and they walk into the cave where the woman is and she's got that, hi there, and the cat's over there. And the cauldron is boiling over, seething with a bunch of scum over the top. She's putting in stuff. She's reaching into jars, putting in stuff. Bring me up, Samuel. <laughs> right? So he disguises himself. And he disguises himself for good reason, because he was the one who put the spiritists and the mediums out of the land. Can you imagine the woman? If he came in all of his royal garb, she'd be like, cooked. She's like, my life is over. So he disguises himself because he's a desperate man. Have you known desperate people? Have you been desperate yourself? Do you find yourself in some of the lowest points of your life doing things that you're just like, you look back now and you're like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe it. But the circumstances and the pressure, they get us to do things that we regret later. And I, this is one of them for Saul. So he disguises himself. And it says, then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life and cause me to die? And, and Saul swore to her by the Lord. Isn't this interesting? This man of God or the man of God he should have been. He swears to her by the Lord, by Jehovah. He swears. He makes an oath to her. As the Lord lives, as Jehovah lives, no punishment shall come for you, come upon you for this thing. Do you understand that he was swearing an oath by the Lord to do something that was against the Lord's word? Do you realize how wrong that is? He is the wrong guy at the wrong place, saying the wrong things at the wrong, everything is wrong about this. Everything is wrong, Right? In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13, it gives us some commentary on Saul's life, and I'd like to read that to you. It's, it's very short. It says, 1 Chronicles 10, verse 13, it says, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness. That's why he died. For his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord. Why? Because he did not keep the word of the Lord. And also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him. 
The Lord killed him. The Philistines did it, but the Lord allowed it. The Lord knew that was coming. That's why he could tell Samuel, as we're going to see here shortly, Samuel told him and prophesied, tomorrow you're going to be with me. In other words, you're going to be with me in the grave. You're going to be with me in the grave. So verse 11 in our text says, Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? (laughs) And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. And you know, this is really hard. It's hard to read, and I can't imagine the turmoil of Saul's heart as he is just violating everything in his whole existence. Do you see that? I mean, just in asking her this thing, he's violating every single thing that his life meant was about. Every single thing. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Why did she cry? We'll look at that. (laughs) And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. Evidently, it appears that the Lord here somehow made her aware that Saul was there. Perhaps Samuel told her himself. We really don't know. But I'm sure she had never experienced anything like this before. Because remember, she's used to speaking to a familiar spirit. And now she's dealing with something, with someone who is more powerful than anything she's ever experienced before. Because normally a medium, like we talked about before, will will be under the, the influence of a lying spirit, a lying demon, right? And it will impersonate whoever it is that's coming up. But this something different happens here. Samuel does come up. The spirit of Samuel comes up. And you've got to be scratching your head like most Bible students. Why would God allow something like this? Why would God? We'll, we'll answer that in just a minute. But notice in verse 13. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. And it's interesting to me how selfish Saul is at this moment in his life because by consulting her and not putting her to death as the Mosaic law prescribed, and that that sounds very harsh for us, But that's how God dealt with sin. That's how he slowed the spread of sin down, is by having very stiff consequences, especially for certain sins. Right? That's how he slowed it down. And you know what? It was very effective. So by by consulting her and not putting her to death as the law prescribed, he was not only condoning her sin, but he was emboldening, emboldening her, really, to continue in what she was doing rather than being discouraged to turn away from it. Do you realize how selfish that is for him? Because he wanted to know something about the following day. I want to know how this battle with the Philistines is going to go. Am I going to to win? Is, is, Is Israel going to win? Am I going to come out of this thing okay? He doesn't care about the woman. There's no there's no concern for her whatsoever. And it reminded me of a verse in Romans when it talks about the wicked. It says in Romans 1, verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And that's exactly what Saul is doing here. He's condoning what she's doing. He's approving what she's doing. And after he leaves, I'm sure she is going to be emboldened to continue doing it. How selfish it is. And that's what sin does. We don't think about other people when we're involved in sin. It's always about me. 
It's always about us. We're not really thinking about anybody else, and that's the insidious nature of sin. Sin always hurts more than one person. It's not just you. It's always others. Always others. There's always a price. This is a hard chapter tonight, but it's, I, I, I love the honesty of it because it doesn't candy coat what Saul did. And God makes no apologies for interrupting the seance, which most people would think God would never be involved in a seance. He wasn't involved. He overthrew the seance. His power is over it. And not only this, what does it say in verse 14? So he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. So now he's bowing down to Samuel. Now he's committing another sin, isn't he? Because what does it tell us in Exodus? You should not make for yourselves any carved image. And certainly no carved image was made by Saul. But notice, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. And now Saul now is so enamored with his, his, his father figure. And granted, Samuel was a wonderful man, but he was not worthy to be bowed down to. You bow to God. And he is a king. People bow down to him. But now he's bowing down to somebody who's not a king, but certainly of greater moral character. But even still, the only one that Saul should have bowed his knee to is Jesus Christ. Same thing for you and I. We bow to him. Verse 15, so Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me from bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. And again, this is a very hard place in the scripture for us. You know, why God would allow this abomination and something that was forbidden to begin with. Why did God allow it? And the simple answer is, I don't know, but God. <laughs> Remember, he's sovereign over all things. What does the Bible tell us? In Acts chapter 10, remember when Peter was preaching at Cornelius' house, what did he say to him? He says, the word of God sent to the children of Israel, or the word of God which, uh, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord over all. God is Lord over all. He's the Lord over everything. In Hebrews 12, verse 9, shall we not much more readily um, be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Speaking of God, he's the Father of spirits. He created all things. Yes, even the demons, before they fell, he created all of that. So he is the Father of spirits. He is the Lord over all. What does it say in Psalm 24? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and all those that dwell therein. What does it tell us in Colossians? Chapter 1, verse 16, for by him, Christ, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, including demons. God is sovereign and controls over all of it. They are not loose cannons that can just go out and do what they want. No, they have to go through God before they can do anything. Look at the first couple of chapters of Job and you'll see that. They do things only by permission. And God allows only certain things when he knows it's going to benefit the person. And sometimes when the person has gone too far, right? So then Samuel said, why do you ask me? And think of the ludicrousness of this. 
Samuel said to Saul, Why do you seek me, seeing that the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And this is a great question. You know, one that Saul should have considered before he consulted the medium. Is, is he expecting Samuel to give him a direction other than what God would have given him? Do you think you know, Samuel now is going to change his mind, that God is going to use Samuel to say, you know, all that stuff I said back to you in chapter 15, it, it's, it's not going to happen. It's okay. Don't worry about it. No, I got some, a new revelation. No, that never happened. God told Samuel exactly what to say, and he said it. Right? And so is he expecting now that he can bring up Samuel and expect maybe now a different answer? Notice it says, and the Lord has, and Samuel continues speaking to Saul, and the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. I've told you this, Saul, already. Weren't you listening? For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Why? Because you did not obey the voice. We just read that in First Samuel 15, didn't we? He, he, you, you were, um, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. To you, this is exactly the same thing that Samuel told Saul while he was still alive. And, and we, we read a portion of that tonight. Verse 19, it says, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver you into my hand, into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. This is really bad news. See, the reason we know this is God working in Samuel, God is, is using Samuel here, overriding this whole demonic thing. God is using Samuel to tell Saul, Saul, you're at your last rope. You want to know what's going to happen tomorrow? I'm going to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. You and your sons, because of your rebellion, you and your sons are going to be with me. You're going to be in the grave tomorrow at this time, and the Philistines are going to rule over, they're going to win the war. Wouldn't it have been better for Saul never to have known that? Can you imagine? What would you do? I, I thought about this. You know, what would I do if I knew that tomorrow, if God told me tomorrow is your last day? Think of how that would make you feel if you're already feeling insecure like Saul is feeling right now. He feels abandoned, and now he's got some more bad news. Can you imagine how that would just wreck him? Now he's going to go into a battle that's, like, meaningless to him. He's just, he knows he's done. And it does come to pass. That's why we know that it was the Lord. It comes to pass precisely as God said that to him. And it would have been better for him never to have consulted the medium. There's an old phrase that says, be careful what you ask for because you might just get it. Right? <laughs> it's a hard word. But that's what Saul was asking for. I want to know what's going to go on tomorrow. Do you really want to know, Saul? I want to know. Tell me. Tell me. No, I don't, I, don't, I don't think you really want to know, Saul. I think you'd better leave now. No, I want to know. No, you really need to leave. No, I want to, you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow? This is what's going to happen. And God tells him. And I'd imagine from that moment he's like, I really wished I didn't know. Because at least he would have some confidence going into battle. But now he's got none He's got none. And you know, this is a really, a really hard time. And, and, and it's good for us to learn from that we never get into a place like that. 
or, or even in a place like David was, because while this is going on, David's struggling as well. In Psalm 106, verse 15, it says this, And he gave them their requests, but sent leanness into their soul. Speaking of Israel, but I think this, this whole thing that's going on with Saul right here is, is very similar. He gave him his request, but what did it do? Did it bring leanness to his soul? You better believe it did. It brought him right to the end of himself. He had no confidence whatsoever. This is really tough passage. And I love the fact that only God knows the future. And he's written it down for us to read. And the devils know what the Bible says. They know it probably better than we do, perhaps. They know what's coming. They just don't know how it's going to come to pass and the timing of things. They don't know what the timing is. So immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, verse 20, and he was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. Now, add to this, I don't know, can you, I put myself in Saul's sandals here, and have you been despondent, and then on top of that, physically, you're, you're, you're famished as well? This is a really bad spot. I mean, I really feel for this man at this point, even though... He brought it on himself, but it's hard. This is like the worst possible scenario for any human being on the planet. He's physically famished. He's, you know, the ceiling is, the heavens are like brass to him. Now he's just been told that tomorrow his life's over because of his rebellion. And Saul, no matter what you do, tomorrow you're going to, you and your sons. I mean, that's just, it's like you just want to, you know, run away from home at that point, <laughs> right? <laughs> Very tough thing. So verse 22, it says, And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and naturally and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. And here I can just imagine this, this woman is very um, unsettled now because even though Saul swore to her by the Lord that he wasn't going to put her to death, now he finds out his own death is imminent and she's thinking to him herself, I would imagine he's got nothing to lose at this point. I better make him something to eat. <laughs> Maybe it'll appease him. So she does. She makes him a calf, makes him a fatted calf, him and a couple other guys with him. And he spares her life. And you know, I'm, but he refused to eat. He says, I will not eat. And so his servants, together with a woman, they urged him, and he heeded their voice. But then he arose from the ground and then sat on the bed. And now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. And so she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And when they arose, they went away that night. They went away that night, and when we look, and we're going to end there tonight, but when we, um, we're going to look at chapter 30 next week, and then the week following, the, the very last uh, battle that Saul is going to be in, and it's really a, uh, an unfortunate thing. And so, you know, some have asked, you know, was Saul a believer? That's another question, and I don't know. I mean, you look at these... Um, you can, 
hear very wonderful men of God saying, yes, we believe he was just a backslidden believer. Others say that they don't think he was a believer at all. And to be honest with you, I don't know myself. But the, the thing that I come away from this is the thing we have to ask ourselves is, why would you want to model the life of Saul? I wouldn't, you know, don't model your life after that, where you, you just have this question mark over your head. Now, most of us in this room, we know we're born again, and I hope you know that. And, you, you know, your, 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 your destination is secure. Why? Because of your faith in Jesus, right? But even for, you know, for those who may be listening that are going to be hearing on the radio at some point, you know, there's going to be people hearing this message that don't have that confidence at all. They don't have that confidence. Why live a life straddled on the fence? You know, if you think you've, you know, you have some semblance of religious or some kind of relationship with the Lord, but you like your sin a lot over here, and you're kind of playing this thing where you're straddled on the fence doing different things, and why do this kind of thing? Why do this? Why make your calling and your election sure, right? It doesn't mean you're going to be a perfect person, but what it is going to mean is you're going to be very serious about your devotion to the Lord, and why? Is because he loves you. He loves you so much. He doesn't want to see you dabbling in those things because those things ultimately will lead you away from him, away from the blessing, away from eternal life, right? Especially if you're an unbeliever and you're, you're dabbling in this stuff, you don't know when your time is up. So why play that game? Come to Christ immediately. We don't know, and for those of us who are Christians, have known him for a long time, if we're dabbling in things that we know we ought not to, today is the day to say, those days are over. I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm going to bed tonight, and I've dead, I'm dead to that thing that I've been doing for 10 years, or the thing that I picked up last year, or the things that have been creeping into my heart. I'm going be, to be done with this thing. And confess it. And ask God to give you the strength to overcome it. You're not going to be able to do it yourself necessarily. You need the Spirit of God. I need the Spirit of God to give me the strength to resist those things. So let's not play games with those things, even as Christians. Because you may be going to heaven, but you know your life, the, the, cl the closer you walk to Jesus, and the more you stay away from the edge of those things, like, you know what I'm talking about, whatever they may be, the farther you are away from the edge, the greater joy you're going to have, the bigger smile that's going to be on your face. Is it going to be a life void of complications? No. But are you going to have joy in the midst of the storm? Yes. Are you going to, have a, you're going to be able to sleep at night and put your head on your pillow knowing that you, 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 you've, as far as you know, your account is all caught up with the Lord? Anything that you've done that day, you've confessed, and he's forgiven you. Do you confess? Things that you did before you go to bed, just say, Lord, if there's anything that I've forgotten, something dumb that I've done today that's against you, Lord, would you please forgive me? And maybe you do know things, but confess and be cleansed from those things. Come into agreement with them and be done with it and live a fruitful life, a joyful life, a life that is a magnet for others. Isn't that what we want? It's not for people to be a magnet to us, but Jesus in us, Right? That's what I want. I want my life to be where people are like, why aren't you bummed out like everybody else? Why, why you know, and, and that's a challenge because sometimes I, I walk around with a mopey looking face on because I'm dealing with something or struggling with, you know, just the things that are going on. And, you know, it's, a, it's an, 
a conviction on my end, too. You know, what's my life? Is, it, is there a fragrance about my life? Is Jesus really the center? Or have I placed him off over here? <laughs> it's a decision we have to make. But let's make that decision tonight, brothers and sisters, family, beloved of God. Let's be done with those things. Maybe none of you in this room or anybody online have anything to, maybe there's nothing pressing, you know. And praise the Lord if that's the case. But if you do, just confess it tonight and be set free. Be set free. Whom the Son is set free is what? Free indeed. I want to be free, don't you? We're free. We're free. We're free. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ and how you set us free. Lord, you give us the, the freedom to not do those things. Lord, you've given us your spirit. And Lord, how we count on you, Lord, to just continue to convict our hearts, to continue to love us in ways that only you can. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would just deliver us from things that we're on the fence about and playing around with that nobody knows about. And Lord, that we would just love you and that your love would just envelop each one of us, Lord. I pray that it would just cover us, that you would cover us and wash us in, in the wonderful blood of Jesus Christ, our soon and returning King, the one who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. Lord, have your way with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.